Well, hey everyone, uh, my name is Norton, and this is the last podcast in our series called People of the Book. I hope this uh, series has been helpful. Uh, we have gotten deep into some of the weeds of questions about this book called the Bible and where it came from and how we got it and how it was preserved. And um, in the last message, part four, we talked about how it was translated. And so today we're going to dig deeper into this issue of modern Bible translations. And there's two topics I want to address um, in this final podcast. Uh, First, the issue of translating gender. And then second, I want to talk about the issue of formatting, uh, which is sort of loosely related to translation, but I want to look at the issue of formatting in modern Bible. So let's talk about the first issue, uh, the Bible translation and gender. Now, let me be super clear here. Um, There are a bunch of issues today that both Christians and uh, the larger culture are discussing related to gender, Um, important issues about the difference between sex and gender, about how gender is constructed in our culture, about how male and female gender identities are formed, um, about transgender identity, about uh, transgender questions, about gender dysphoria. There's all kinds of really important issues to discuss. And and when I mention the word gender, your mind might go to some or all of those issues. And as important as those are to discuss, that's not actually what I mean when I refer to the Bible translation and gender. There's actually a much more narrow issue that I want to discuss. It's a challenge that modern translators of the Bible have been exploring and discussing and often debating over the past 30 years or so. And um, and there's really two broad approaches, if you will, that have been taken to this specific challenge that's come up. So let me describe the challenge first, and then I'll describe uh, the approaches that have been taken and, and why I think actually one of these approaches or one of these solutions is, is the best one. So here's the problem. Uh, the books that were written and then compiled together to become what we now call the Bible, uh, the Old Testament books and the New Testament books, they were originally written in a cultural setting that was patriarchal, right? That, that's just, that's very obvious. If you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you, you see and understand pretty quickly uh, the patriarchal culture of the ancient Near East, of ancient Israel, even of the Greek and the Roman culture of Jesus's time. Um, And that culture shapes language. It it shapes not only the way you think about things, but it even shapes the way you say things, the very language that you use. So, for instance, uh, the Bible uses almost exclusively male language and male pronouns even when it's talking about a mixed group of people, of both males and females, or when it's referring to an individual person that may be a male or a female. So I'll explain what this all means. Let me give you a few examples. In Philippians, um, Paul is writing a letter. He writes numerous letters that are in the New Testament. Um, But in the letter of Philippians, uh, he several times uses the term 
brothers. Um, in Greek, it's Adelphoi, uh, brothers, when he's addressing the readers of his letter. Um, but he also specifically mentions women in the letter, women to whom he is writing and to whom he is addressing in his letter. Uh, and so it's clear that even though Paul uses the very masculine word brothers when he's addressing his recipients, um, what he means in English is brothers and sisters, right? In Greek, the masculine term for brothers, whenever you're speaking of a group of people, also includes women. Uh, Another way this happens is with the Greek term anthropos. It's the masculine term that can mean um, man in the sense of an individual man or male, um, or it can be more generic and it can mean a person or humans in general. And you, you probably recognize this is where we get the term anthropology, the study of humans, right? Or human cultures. Um, and so in 1 Timothy 2, Paul uh, says, we should pray for all anthropon, which is the plural uh, version of this word, because God desires all anthropon to be saved. And that happens through the anthropos, Jesus who is a mediator between God and Anthropone, right? So how do we translate that? Is Paul saying we should only pray for men because only men will be saved because Jesus is a man and he is a mediator between only God and men and women are left out of this whole equation, right? Is that how you should translate it? Of course not. (laughs) Um, It's talking about all people, It's not talking about just men, but there's not a gender neutral term for humanity or people in Greek. If you want to speak about humanity or people in Greek, you just use the plural anthropone. Now, clearly he's not speaking about only men here. He's speaking about people, right? Even um, when he references Jesus as an anthropos, it's, it, he's not focusing on Jesus's maleness. He's focusing on Jesus's humanity. He's saying Jesus is unique and he can serve as a mediator between both God and humans um, because he is both God and a human. He's not saying because he's God and a male, right? Uh, but in Greek, there's just one term. It's a masculine term, anthropos, that covers both options, male or man, or human or humanity in general. Um, Hebrew is the same way. Uh, Psalm 1-1, first verse of the first psalm, right? says, blessed is the ish, ish is a Hebrew word, who does not walk with the wicked, but delights uh, in the law of the Lord. Um, Ish means man in Hebrew. It refers to a specific individual male, But it can also, just like the Greek equivalent, it can also mean a person or a human in the very general sense. So, uh, is Psalm 1 saying only men can be blessed if they choose not to walk with the wicked and if they delight in the law of the Lord? Um, And that women don't have this opportunity. This is an opportunity that's only extended to men. That if they don't walk with the wicked and they delight in the law, then they can be blessed. But women cannot be blessed in this way, right? Is that what it's saying? Or 
is ish being used in the very general sense to just refer to any person who is not wicked, any person who delights in God's law. And almost every interpreter of the Bible that I know would say this is not just about men, right? And probably you're sensing it from the way I'm I'm describing this. This is about all people, right? But there's not a gender neutral term in Hebrew that could have been used. There's only one term that can refer to a man specifically. That's ish. There's another term for a woman. It's isha, right? And so if you're talking about a man, you would use ish. If you're talking about a specific woman, you would use isha. But whenever you're referring to a mixed group of men and women, you use the plural masculine. There's not a plural neutral that refers to both. You just use the plural masculine. And that's just the way their language works. And that's the way their culture worked. Now, a side note here. A lot of languages are still this way. English is actually quite different. We don't have gendered words anymore, but a lot of languages, if you've ever learned Spanish or French, if you took one of those languages or Italian, right, you know that a lot of languages actually still use gendered words. Nouns uh, have a gender. Um, And so in Spanish, uh, hermano is the term for brother, and hermana, the A at the end instead of an O, Hermana is the term for sister. And so if you're talking about brothers, you say hermanos. And if you're talking about sisters, you say hermanas. And if you're talking about all of your siblings, all of your brothers and sisters together, then you use the term hermanos. You use the masculine plural. There isn't a a gender neutral plural term to use. You just always use the masculine plural, but it's obvious from the context and everyone would know you're talking about both your your brothers and your sisters. Now, this is a challenge in the Bible, not only when we're using these terms like anthropos or ish, which can refer to a single male or a group of both men and women or, you know, plural humans or humanity in general. It's also a challenge in the Bible when there's just pronouns that are used. So uh, Jesus says, uh, it's recorded in Luke chapter 9. It's a famous verse. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now Jesus uses here, or at least Luke records it this way, masculine pronouns the word that's used in the in the in the original greek is is the word for he and the word for his cross right um so the question is is jesus only extending this invitation to men to follow him is jesus only allowing men to be disciples of him to follow his way And the obvious answer is no, right? Because we know lots of women followed Jesus and were part of his disciples. The reason Jesus uses masculine pronouns is not because this is an exclusive invitation only to men. It's because there was no other option in his language. In that language and in that culture, that's how you referred to a person. There wasn't a gender neutral pronoun that could have been used. If you wanted to refer to a generic individual or a generic person, you simply used 
the words that we translate as he and his. You used those pronouns. Now, up until the 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s in our own culture, um, it, it was a slow transition. I can't point to a single event or a single year, right? But up until about the mid or late 20th century, this was still an acceptable way to actually write and talk in English. Most authors, uh, if you read a work before that time, whenever they cited an example of a generic person, the author would typically also just use male pronouns, right? And we would use this masculine language as well. And that's because in our American culture, um, we have very patriarchal roots. Uh, There's always been traditional roles uh, for men and women in our culture. Men have been seen as the leaders in the house. Men have been seen as the leaders in business and government in our history. Um, Men were seen as the leaders in society, right? Women could not even vote in our culture until the 1920s because they were not seen as the leaders or or the stakeholders in, in our society. So even me growing up in the 70s and 80s, right, when I was a kid, I would read those verses in the Bible where Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross and, and follow me, right? And, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? I heard those as a kid, and I never paused to think who, who Jesus was talking about or who Paul was talking about. I knew it referred to everyone. I knew anyone could be a disciple. I knew anyone could be a part of the new creation, right? I knew that these... Phrases referred to both men and women, but I was also totally comfortable with the masculine language that was used. But there was a slow shift in our culture, and it went along with other cultural shifts that we don't have time to get into, but this this shift as it relates specifically to language and gender was this. If we're talking about a mixed group of people, we should use both male and female pronouns or both male and female examples, both masculine and feminine language. Uh, Reason number one that we should use both is simply to be more accurate, right? If I'm a teacher and I'm talking uh, about a classroom of students and I say, well, every student should bring his book to class, Well, you know what I probably mean. You know that I'm probably talking to everybody, but strictly speaking, it sounds like I'm only talking to the male students, right? Every student should bring his book to class. It sounds like I'm only referring to the male students. Why not simply say every student should bring his or her book to class? That would be more accurate to my intent. That that would be more correct to what I'm hoping. I want every student to bring his book, or her book to class, right? And so some people talk about this as being gender-accurate language. Um, Now, the second reason for this shift in the way we use language uh, is maybe even more significant, and it was a recognition that when we use masculine-dominated language, it can actually propagate cultural attitudes towards women that we need to shift and we need to change. So think about it. If I want my daughter to grow up, and I have two daughters, if I want them to grow up uh, knowing 
that they can be architects or they can be lawyers or they can be doctors or they can be engineers or they can be business entrepreneurs, which are professions historically in our culture dominated by men, right? But I want my daughters to know if you have giftings in this areas and desires in this areas, you can be these things. But at the same time, I continue to use masculine dominated language, right? I use phrases like, well, when a doctor sees his patients, when an architect submits his drawings, or think about these terms, the terms businessman, fireman, policeman, right? If I continue to use that kind of language and I don't realize how powerful words are, then even though I'm telling my daughters, you can be an engineer or a doctor or an architect or a lawyer or a business person when you grow up, if you're gifted and you have desires in that way, but I'm using this very powerful language that's actually communicating the opposite. It's communicating, but you still live in a male-dominated world and you don't really fit into it. And so what you see in Western culture in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and in the last 30 or 40 years, you see a lot of authors, writers, speakers, communicators shifting their language, subtly shifting the way they talk and write and engage to ensure that they're talking and writing and engaging all people. They're giving a voice to all people. They're, they're including all people right? In their language that they actually use. And so if you get back to the Bible, uh, you find at the same time, this is when there's a lot of new English translations coming about, and you find translators asking really good questions about masculine and feminine and gendered language. And so if Paul... And if Jesus, and if the writer of Psalm 1, and if all the other writers of these books, if there's certain times where they're not intending to only talk about males, right? But they had to use masculine words and masculine language and masculine pronouns because they had no other option in that language. That's just the way their language worked. But if it's clear from the context that they weren't just talking about males, they were talking about everyone, And if it's also normal and accepted in our modern culture to use more gender accurate and gender neutral language, well, then shouldn't we translate the Bible that way? Wouldn't that be the best way to translate the intent of the original author and the text into a modern English translation? And so a number of translations in the past 30 years have just done that. That's what the NIV has done. So Psalm 1 in the NIV reads, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked, but delights in the Lord, or whose delight is in the Lord. Remember, the original Hebrew word is often translated as man. Blessed is the man. And later there's a pronoun that says his delight is in the Lord. But as we've discussed, it's pretty obvious this passage isn't just about males. And so the translators of the NIV would say that actually the most accurate way to translate this passage to the original intent of the author and the most accurate way to translate this passage into the English that we now use 
is to not use the English word man, but to simply say, blessed is the one. One is a great gender neutral term, a great gender accurate term that's actually a better translation than continuing to use the word man. So uh, the NIV also translates um, Jesus' teaching as, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So uh, the NIV uses the word whoever here, not if any man wants to be my disciple, but just whoever here. And then instead of deny himself and take up his cross, the NIV switches to the third person plural. They must deny themselves and take up their cross, which is a neutral way of referring to a generic person or group of people. Now, some people uh, don't love using the third person plural in this way, um, but it's actually become quite acceptable now in English. Um, the other option would be to say, uh, to translate it as, uh, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself or herself and take up his cross or her cross daily, right? You could do that, um, but that gets pretty cumbersome uh, pretty quick. And so most translations um, follow what has become um, accepted English convention um, and use the third person plural in a passage like this. And so also Second uh, Corinthians 5, so Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That's also third person plural. Um, and then in 1 Timothy 2, right? Paul says we should pray for all people, not just all men, but we should pray for all people because God desires all people to be saved. Anthropone in this context isn't just referring to all men, it's all people, right? And when Paul addresses brothers in Philippians and even in other letters, he's not just talking to men, right? It would be easy to just translate it as brothers, but in our context, that would appear to sound like he's only talking to men. And so the NIV inserts the words and sisters in there so that it's really clear. And it's not that the NIV is adding words. (laughs) It's that the translators of the NIV would say, actually, The one Greek word in the original context is best translated by three English words, brothers and sisters, because it's clear Paul is addressing both men and women. Uh, You could translate it as siblings, but we, we don't use that word as much in English. It's not as accepted, and it sounds a little bit more weird. And so until that becomes way more accepted, brothers and sisters is probably the best translation. So uh, the NIV has addressed this issue of sort of masculine language in the original contexts, um, referring to more gender neutral uh, or gender accurate uh, groups of people. The NIV has embraced this translation principle, and sometimes it's called a gender accurate translation. Sometimes it's called gender inclusive translation. Sometimes it's called gender neutral language. Um, The New Living Translation does this as well, the NLT. Um, The new revised standard version, NRSV, was actually one of the first translations to really embrace uh, this principle of translation. And and just to be clear real quick, um, 
We're not talking about gender descriptions of specific people. <laughs> if there's a specific male in the Bible that's being described, then masculine language is still used. And if there's a specific female that's being described, then feminine language is still used because that's the original context. We're also not talking about language used to refer to God, right? Where the word masculine word father is used to describe God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all major modern translations still translate that as father because it's very clear that in that context, it's referring to a masculine word, right? We're not talking about um, any context in the Bible or any passages in the Bible where males or females are being specifically addressed as males or females, This is just about passages and references in the Bible that are made to general people, that are made to uh, generic groups of people that clearly include both males and females, but for which masculine language is used because that was the only option in the original language, right? Now, Uh, The NIV, the New Living Translation, New Revised Standard Standard Version have all sort of embraced that the best solution to this is to use gender accurate or gender neutral language. Um, But there's a couple of translations uh, that don't embrace this principle. And this is the second approach to to dealing with this challenge. Um, The King James Version continues to use masculine language. I don't think that's going to change because... Uh, That's just the way the King James Version is, right? Um, But there's another translation I want to talk about for a few minutes. Uh, It's the most popular translation that continues to use masculine-specific language in passages where it's clear both genders are being addressed, and it's called the English Standard Version, or the ESV. And there's two primary reasons the ESV continues to use masculine-specific language in those contexts and passages I described before. Uh, Number one is this. The ESV is on the left side of that chart or that spectrum of translation approaches that I gave you in the last message, part four. In other words, the ESV specifically embraces a very formal equivalence approach, meaning uh, the ESV translators think it's important to stick with the word order, the grammar, the idioms of the original language as much as possible. Even if that means the English the English is a little bit awkward, right? Even if that means um, the units of measurement they use are the ancient units of measurement, which nobody even understands today. So the ESV still uses cubits um, and talks about denarius coins and shekels. And, and most people read that and we don't know how long a cubit is or how much a shekel is worth or what a homer is. Um, a homer is an actual unit of measurement. It has nothing to do with baseball. But we don't know that when we read that. And so the ESV is fine using these ancient standards of measurement, ancient idioms, ancient word order, ancient grammar, because they would rather be as quote, literal as possible. And and as I talked about in the last message, I don't love the word literal because I think that's misleading. Um, But they're okay with that. They want to stick with the original as much as possible. And then if you have to do some work to translate that into our culture or the way that we understand things, then you can do that work. Now, personally, 
I think that's more cumbersome. I actually think that's unhelpful. Uh, the goal of a translation is to translate it into our language and into our culture. And so if I'm reading an English translation, but I still have to do more work of translation after reading the translation, then that doesn't seem to fulfill the purpose of a translation for me, right? So I, I think it's more cumbersome and, and unhelpful, this, this sort of approach. But I understand it. And I can respect it, you know? Um, I can respect a group of translators that says, here's our approach. If at all possible, we are going to try and follow the original forms, even if that's harder for a modern reader. And you can see that if you take that approach, <laughs> then it's pretty easy to conclude, you know what? If Jesus used masculine pronouns, then we're not going to mess with it. We're going to use masculine pronouns as well. If Paul lived in a patriarchal culture and Paul's language reflects that, then we're not going to mess with it. We're not going to change it, right? If anthropos means man, and if ish means man, and if in some contexts it also can mean humans or persons, let's just keep it simple and stick with man most of the time. And so in Psalm 1, the ESV still reads, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, but whose delight, you know, his delight is in the Lord. And in the ESV, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And in the ESV, the Greek word anthropos is almost always translated as man or men. So Jesus says to his disciples when he first meets them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? That's, that, some of us might remember that from the King James Version. The word anthropos is used there. And so even though it's probably pretty clear that Jesus is not saying we're only going to convert you know, and bring this message to men all over the world. We're going to bring it to everyone. Um, the ESV sticks with the masculine language. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, John says in the ESV that Jesus came to be the light um, to all men, right? And, that, and Paul in Ephesians says that Jesus gives gifts to all men, right? These are all terms, anthropos, where it seems pretty clear that he's talking about all people, but the ESV sticks with the very uh, uh, masculine language of men. Now, I could go on and on. There's lots of examples I could give you. And it can be a little confusing because every now and then the ESV is not consistent. Every now and then the ESV does translate it using neutral language. Uh, Romans 3.28, Paul says, we hold that an anthropos is justified by faith. The ESV says, we hold that one is justified by faith. I'm not sure why they didn't translate it man here, because they do it in most other circumstances. Why didn't they say, we hold that a man is justified by faith? But here they went more neutral. We hold that one is justified by faith. Um, or Acts 10.28, Peter says, God has shown to me that I should not call any anthropos impure or unclean. 
This is where Peter is, is learning that, that even the Gentiles um, can be clean and pure before God and that they shouldn't be considered impure or unclean. And so the ESV translates this as, God has shown me that I should not call any person impure or unclean. Again, I'm not totally certain why the ESV went with person there and not man, because they usually use man everywhere else. Um, and, and even in the First Timothy 2 passage, uh, Paul says in the ESV that we should pray for all people because God desires all people to be saved. So in these few exceptions I've given you, the ESV, um, the translators of the ESV recognize the wider inclusiveness that these original Greek and Hebrew words have within them. And every now and then they translate them that way, but more often than not, 90, 95% of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, the ESV sticks with masculine language. And I don't think you can explain it simply by their translation approach of formal equivalence. Because the new American standard, um, was, which was updated last year, has now embraced gender accuracy in all of those contexts where masculine pronouns or terms are used to describe a mixed group or simply a generic person. The New American Standard is, is probably farther uh, left on that chart than, than the ESV. Like They stick with a very rigid, um, a, a rigid formal equivalence approach, and yet they've recognized that these masculine terms, when they're used to refer to a generic group of people, should be translated with more gender-accurate or gender-neutral language. Which obviously begs the question, why is the ESV still sticking with masculine language? Even when the context suggests otherwise, even when the meaning suggests otherwise, even when other formal equivalent translations have recognized this. And I think there's a second reason, um, and it's more subtle and, and yet probably more powerful for why the ESV is sticking with the masculine language in these instances. And that's because the scholars that translated the ESV are complementarian um, or traditional or patriarchal in their theological approach to men's and women's gender roles. And, and that's just a fact. That's not, I'm not guessing that. They're, they're very open about that. They're very well-respected scholars, but they all come from theological traditions that believe that God has given the key role of leadership in both the church and the home to men and not to women. That men have a fundamental authority, a fundamental role of authority over women. And I think this theological perspective cannot uh, not play a role in their translation approach, right? Um, even though the gender translation issues I've been talking about have nothing whatsoever to do as gender, with gender roles, those who take a more patriarchal approach to gender roles in the home, husband and wife, and in the church, leadership and elders and pastors and preaching and those kind of things, those who believe that men have an authoritative role in those spheres, it seems to be that they're threatened by any translations that might put men and women on an equal footing. And I say that as 
as kindly as I can. I have very good friends who hold this theological perspective. I have very good friends who love the ESV as a translation, and they love Jesus, and they follow Jesus in their lives, and I have huge respect for them. I've also noticed that there is a deep-seated fear that if we start saying, blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord, instead of blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, then the next thing you know, we'll be turning Jesus into a woman and and God the Father into God the Mother. And uh, if I'm honest, I just think that's an unrealistic and misguided fear, right? I want a translation that says, blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord. Not because I think men are horrible humans, right? Not because I have a secret agenda to start worshiping female goddesses and deities, right? I want a translation that says, blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord, because I think that's what the original author meant. I think that's the most accurate translation. I don't think the original author only thought that men could be blessed by God and could delight in God's law, right? And I want my daughters to grow up knowing that they can be new creations and that they can be blessed and that they can be loved and that the call to follow Jesus is extended to them too. It's not just for men. And that they are equal in his eyes and that they are prized and they are loved members of God's family. And if poor translations are keeping them from knowing that, or if I have an English translation that I read to them and then I have to also explain to them and say, actually, I know that Paul said only men can be included in the new translation, but that's just because Paul's language only had masculine pronouns and he couldn't write it in a way that would be gender neutral because here's how the original Greek worked. And the people who translated this in English were scared that if they put, you know, you could become a new creation, then you would actually start becoming a militant feminist, right? Like, like, why would we create those barriers, Why would we continue to translate in a way that makes it difficult for people to understand what the original intent of these sacred writings is? And so to me, it just doesn't make sense. And for that reason, I just don't recommend the ESV to people. I'm not a huge fan of formal equivalent translations to begin with because I just think they're harder to read. Um, But I think the way the ESV deals with this specific translation issue, it's just inaccurate. It's not, it doesn't uh, render the original meaning well. And I think it's driven more by fear than a desire for accuracy. Um, And I'm also disappointed because the ESV translators have decided they're never going to update the translation. They've made it a permanent translation and they're not open to updates or revisions. Um, Now, I'm not going to judge you. If you use the ESV, like I said, I have a lot of friends that use it and love it. And I even consult it every now and then, right? But for me, this is just one of those issues that tilts me away from the more formal, rigid, and wooden translations, the formal equivalence approaches. And if you really want a translation that embraces that approach, then I would suggest the NAS, the New American Standard, because I think they still hold on to that approach but they recognize with this specific issue that in order to be accurate, we need to translate it a better way. All right, enough about gender and translation. Let me tackle one more issue. I wanna talk about formatting 
um, which is less about translation, but it's directly related to how we read and engage the Bible. And so if you're wanting to read and engage and understand the Bible well, um, you have to think about the specific translation you're going to use. And, and I gave you a bunch of recommendations for that. But you also have to think about what format are you going to use to actually read and engage the Bible. So for starters, a lot of people now um, use their phones to read the Bible. It's convenient. Uh, it's easy. You have your phone with you everywhere you go, right? And there's some great Bible apps that are available um, the easiest is literally called the Bible app, right? It's easy to download and use. It used to be called Uversion. Um, you can download it from the App Store. Um, you can pick from a whole bunch of great translations. All the translations I've talked about are available on the Bible app. It's free. The Bible is right there at your fingertips to read anytime you want. And I use the Bible app. Um, there's other functions of this app. There's plans and there's other stuff you can do. But, but for me, the main way that I use the Bible app is simply to read the Bible. So it is a great resource, and I would highly recommend having that resource available on your phone. Having said that, I also want to advocate for and argue for and inspire you towards using a physical paper copy of the Bible most of the time. I would go so far as to say 95% of the time. And here's why. Let me give you four reasons. Uh, number one, the tactile engagement. When you physically have a book open, when you have to turn pages, when you have to read the ink on the page, study after study, scientific studies have shown that you actually engage the text better. And this is true of all written text, not just the Bible. It's true of all written text when you're reading it in a, a physical, tactile book versus reading it on a screen. When you're reading it in a book, you see it better, you read it better, you remember it better, it connects to your brain and to your heart more effectively. Um, and, and again, that's not just old school, like anti-technology, anti-phone, kind of like don't use your phone thing. That's literally science showing us that there's more to reading than just seeing the picture of a word on a page or a screen. That this physical tactile engagement actually connects us much deeper to the words and to the message that are on the page when we're using a physical book than when we're just looking at a screen. So the tactile engagement is important. Uh, number two for reason for using a physical book most of the time and why I think they're better, you can engage the broader context of what you're reading so much better. Phone screens are awesome, right? The technology is amazing and um, Apple uh, continues to figure out ways to just make your screen brighter and sharper and cooler and uh, all kinds of things, right? And yet, they're still only so big. They're not very big at all. You, you can't see much text on a phone screen when you're reading it. You don't see the larger context of what you're actually reading the way you do with a physical page. It's also easier um, to make connections with a verse that you read uh, 30 seconds ago when you have a book because the verse that you read 30 seconds ago is still right in front of you. It's on the page in front of you. On a screen, 
You only see a handful of words or a handful of sentences, and then you're scrolling down. And once you scroll down, the verse that you read before, it's gone. It's literally not visible to your eyes anymore. And mentally, our computer screens and our phone screens and our TV screens have trained us to be stimulated by new images every few seconds and to immediately forget the thing that we were looking at just a few seconds ago. But you don't do that with a physical book, right? You can still see the thing you were looking at a few seconds ago. And honestly, you can make references to other things more quickly with a physical book, right? If I suddenly think, wow, I'm reading in a physical book. Wow, this sounds like a psalm that I remember about a shepherd. In one or two seconds, I flip the pages to the book of Psalms and I'm starting to skim through the book of Psalms. Like, I think it was in the 20s. I think it was Psalm 20 something. Was it 21? Huh, let me skim that. No, no, no. Was it 22? Was it 23, right? Oh, and and then that process of discovery takes place with a physical book where your tactile engagement is happening and that process of discovery and all of those things sort of cements this learning process as you find what you're looking for, but a phone doesn't do that. You, You don't discover things in the same way with a phone, right? Now, are there some pretty cool capabilities with the phone? Yeah, can you just go to a different app, right? To Safari or to you know Google or whatever, um, Chrome, and can you just Google like the words Psalm and Shepherd, and in a millisecond, right? Google's going to tell you it's Psalm twenty three, and it even provides a link, and you click the link, and you're there, right? So, so there is a speed and an efficiency that happens with a phone and with that kind of technology, but every single study has shown that the costs associated with that kind of speed and efficiency are that you're not going to remember what you found. You're not going to remember what you discovered. You didn't actually learn anything in the process of discovery, just like we don't remember phone numbers anymore. We don't remember addresses. We don't remember directions to get to places because we're so reliant on search engines and apps, right? Which are incredibly easy, and they're convenient, and they have their place in our lives. I love Google Maps. But if I want to engage the Bible in the way that it was meant to be engaged, if I want to engage the Bible in a way that's going to have a formative and transformative effect on me, then a physical Bible will almost always be better than an app on your phone. So, that's Reason number two, uh, it's easier and better to engage the broader context. Reason number three is you have better focus. Let me tell you what I mean by this. When I sit on the couch or in a chair in the corner of a room or whatever I'm sitting and I open a paper Bible and there's one thing I'm going to do with this book, then I can focus on that one thing, right? I mean, this book, this physical copy of the Bible, it has one use in my life. I'm probably not, I mean, I guess you could use it as a door, you know, paper weight or a door weight to hold a door, but we don't, right? We, we use a paper Bible for one purpose, one use, one goal, to read it, right? And when I'm reading it, I don't use it for anything else. So there's this thing that mentally and emotionally happens within me, this interior thing I can't even measure very well. When I pick up a physical Bible, it mentally and emotionally and psychologically takes me to a place 
and to a posture of listening, of reading, of learning, of engaging. It's a little bit like when you pick up a remote control, right? A remote control has one function, right? And when you pick it up, your mind and your heart prepare to do what? To watch TV and to surf the channels, right? It has that function and it prepares you for that. And so the minute I pick that up, I am already in that mindset of watching and channel surfing. And so here's the question. When you pick up your phone, what's the mindset that you're in? What happens in your mind and your heart that you're not even aware of? What are you mentally and emotionally at this deep, effective level? What are you being prepared to do whenever you pick up your phone? Well, You're preparing to check email. You're preparing to check messages. You're preparing to check Snapchat to see if anyone's chatting with you, right? You're preparing to check Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You're preparing to check the headlines to see what's happening in the world. You're preparing to to play a game on your phone. You're preparing to see if there's anything that's gone on in the world in the last 30 seconds that you've missed, right? You're preparing for that little hit of dopamine that happens every single time you look at your phone in hopes that there's some new stimulant, right? There's a new notification and that notification provides the dopamine and the stimulant that you're looking for, right? Which is the exact opposite of what reading the Bible is all about or what reading the Bible provides. It doesn't provide that little hit of dopamine or that stimulant. That's not what reading the Bible is about. So I find it's very hard to focus when I'm reading the Bible on my phone because my mind is subconsciously wanting all of the other things that I associate with my phone and that my phone usually provides to me. And so if I want to focus on the very different things that Bible engagement is going to provide, which is not going to be instant stimulation and it's not going to be instant gratification, it's going to be slow, patient, formation, right? If I want to focus on those kind of things, then the best way to do that is to find a chair somewhere in a room in my house to put my phone in a totally different room and to curl up with a physical copy of the Bible. And that's related to a fourth reason that physical copies can be so helpful over a phone. And that's because your phone is distracting, right? It's hard to turn off all the notifications, It's hard to turn off all the sounds, all the haptic responses that you're feeling if it's in your pocket. It's hard to close all the apps. I mean, how many of us live our lives with a million different apps open all the time? I mean, I guess we can turn off all the notifications. I guess you can select, you know, do not disturb mode and you can can turn off all the sounds and all the haptic responses and you can close all the apps and you can just have one app open, but that is really hard. And it's one of the reasons that I don't love for people to use their phones as a Bible, even in a church worship service. I know it's the most convenient thing because it's in your pocket and it's super easy and convenient. And yet to pull it out of your pocket, unlock your screen, go to your Bible app, not notice any new notifications that you've got or resist the temptation to check any of those other things that are open. It's just really hard why would I force myself to keep having to resist all these temptations of distractions when it would be so much easier if I just used a paper Bible? So like I said, I, I'm, I'm not 
saying that Bible apps don't have their places. They do. I use the Bible app from time to time. And I know many of you do as well. They're really handy. I just want to challenge you to make it the exception. Maybe even make it the rare exception, not the rule. Get a nice physical copy of the Bible and make that the primary text that you engage. Now, let me talk about physical copies of the Bible real quick. Actually, there's one other thing. Let me touch on real, before we do that. Um, there's a different way you can engage the Bible, and that's not reading it. That's listening to it. And if you actually think about it, and I could have done a whole podcast on this, uh, listening to the Bible is the primary way most people have engaged Scripture throughout all of human history. Most people did not read the Bible for themselves. They heard it read out loud to them. And that doesn't mean it's better. It just engages a totally different part of the whole learning and listening process. And so you might consider incorporating more of that into your life, listening to the Bible read out loud. Now, the Bible app does have that capability. There's a number of audio versions of the Bible on the Bible app. And from time to time, I've used those in my car um, or, or to listen to a passage of scripture. Um, so you could use the Bible app for that. There's some other apps that do that. Um, there's actually a new app called Dwell, D-W-E-L-L. You can just Google that in the apps or look it up in the app store, right? Um, and it has some really good audio versions of the of different translations of the Bible, meaning they're read by people in such a way that they just sound more engaging and more pleasing. Um, the Dwell app is a bit pricey, but it might be a new way of hearing the Bible, of engaging the Bible that you've been looking for. Um, so uh, consider checking that out if you're interested. Okay, last thing, paper Bibles. What should you look for? You are super excited now after this amazing sermon series to go out and buy a new Bible. Uh, so what kind of Bible should you buy? Well, I've said it before, there is a place for study Bibles. I think having a good study Bible can be helpful. Um, study Bibles have a ton of notes and maps and charts and all sorts of extra stuff. I also think there's something to be said for having a second version of the Bible. So maybe you have a study Bible and then you have another version of the Bible that is really simple and that's used just for devotional reading, right? It's used for your everyday reading. And here's a few features I would recommend. Um, number one, uh, single column. So single column is, is just a great feature. A lot of traditional Bibles are two columns to a page. So if you open it up and you actually have two pages there, you see four columns of text, two on the left and two on the right. And they're designed that way because you can get more text on a page and the Bible's a really long book and so that you don't have this massive book. They try to they make the font really small um, and they you know get as much as they can on a page and so they use two columns. Here's the downside to that. Think about this. What are the only other books that you read that have multiple columns on a page? Textbooks, right? <laughs> no other books that you read are like that. And so if that's the only other books that are like that, then when you read the Bible, it starts to feel like a textbook, which it's not. So consider looking for a single column Bible um, I think they're a great way of reading. Um, you might look for one that has a larger font as well, just so it's easy on your eyes. 
Um, you might even get, uh, because sometimes the book can get really big if it has a large font and it's single column. Um, so there's now versions of the Bible that um, are specific books of the Bible or just the Old Testament and just the New Testament. So that's a way of not having to carry one massive book around. But look for a single column uh, Bible. Um, number two, uh, look for one that doesn't have any study notes, right? Again, <laughs> What kind of books do we read that have a whole bunch of study notes or footnotes at the bottom or extra stuff in there aside from the text? The only other books that are like that are textbooks or really academic technical books, right? And so if that's what your mind is expecting and if that's what you read, then you're going to approach the Bible that way. So try to get a Bible um, that doesn't have any extra study notes. When you need to study, you can use the study Bible you have. When you're just reading, have a Bible that's really simple, doesn't have any extra stuff. Um, number three, uh, maybe try to find a Bible that doesn't have any extra bells or whistles. So huh, there's Bibles with like gold edging. Uh, there's Bibles that have thumb tabs. Um, I know a lot of thumb tabs are added to Bibles to, to make it easier to find different books in the Bible quickly. I had one of these growing up as a kid. And when you don't know where Nehemiah is, you can just find the little tab and you can turn there really quickly. And that's nice. Um, but now I think I find that those things are a distraction. And again, that that process of discovery, looking for the book of Nehemiah or going to the table of contents and having to figure out where it is, is actually helpful. So uh, th maybe this is more personal preference, but I find all the bells and whistles can be a distraction. So maybe try to find one that's simple without those. And then number four, um, this is a big one. And this might be a new suggestion for a lot of people. Look for a Bible that doesn't have any chapter or verse numbers. So this is the same principle as I've mentioned before. Can you think of any other books that you read that have verse numbers every sentence or two? right? No. I mean, there's not, not even textbooks do that, right? There's no other books that we read that are like that, that have all of these little numbers in them. We certainly, we read books with chapters, um, but not as many chapters as we have in the Bible and certainly not all these verses. And don't forget, these were added hundreds and hundreds of years later. The numbers and the chapters are not in the original text. Um, now, they were added to make it easier to reference but they're not so helpful for just everyday reading. And, and, and a lot of the time, they just become distracting, right? They break up the text into these little bite-sized verses, which is not the way it was written. Like if Paul could see that now, he would, I think, say to us, like, I didn't write my letter that way. Like you're reading it totally the wrong way, right? There's no best-selling author in the world. Think about your favorite author, fiction or nonfiction, who, when they write their book and they submit it to their publisher, if their publisher came back to them and said, hey, we're going to add verse numbers every couple of sentences, there is no author in the world that would be excited about that. They would say, no way, that's not the way literature is meant to be read. So look for a, a version of the Bible, and this has actually become somewhat popular in the last few years. This is somewhat new. There have been several editions of the Bible that have come out that have taken the chapter and verse numbers totally out. Um, so if you like the NIV, there's literally a version called the NIV Reader's Bible. I have one of them, and it's super simple, super plain, no verses, no chapters. That's the literal name of it, the NIV Reader's Bible. You can find it on Amazon. It's single column as well, no extra notes, and it's, it's a delight 
to sit down and read. Um, there's also um, a set of books called Immerse. Um, Immerse. Um, and this is the New Living Translation, the NLT Reader's Edition. And they've actually broken uh, s- broken the Bible up into six volumes. So it's not one massive volume and they're actually more sized like normal books. And uh, they don't have, it's the new NLT version, um, Reader's Edition, and it doesn't have any verse numbers um, or chapter numbers as well. Now, um, the Immerse or the Reader's Bible, it, it's not for everyone, right? And And if you want to get a version of the Bible that has uh, verse numbers, there are still some versions that have single column that don't have a bunch of notes that don't have other stuff, but still have the verse numbers. Um, I have a version of the NLT called the filament Bible. It's single column. It's clean. It doesn't have any study notes. It's got this handy little thing that you can actually put your phone up to any page and your phone will take you directly to the study notes, but the study notes are not in the paper version of the Bible at all. I thought that was pretty cool. I, I actually rarely use it. I just like the way the whole Bible looks because it's clean and single column. And it's the New Living Translation, which I enjoy reading. And it's called the Filament Bible. Um, there's one other version of the New Living Translation or NLT that is beautiful. Um, and I could recommend it. It's by a company called Alabaster. Uh, you can find them at alabasterco.com. Um, And they've produced individual books of the Bible with a beautiful sort of layout with beautiful photographs. It's very simple. Every book of the Bible, it has beautiful photographs to go along with the the text. Um, They're not cheap. I'll warn you, these are fairly expensive versions of the Bible, but they're worth taking a look at if you want to engage the Bible in a new way. All right. So I'll say um, these are my suggestions I think putting, you know, it might cost some money to buy a nice Bible or one that you're actually going to read. But if you take care of it and you read it and you're excited about using it, like I find when you're excited about using something, you'll use it. If you have 18 cheap copies of the Bible that you're not excited about reading, you're never going to read any of them. So think about spending some money on a good version of the Bible to read. Um, That's a lot to think about. A ton of suggestions. Let me say this last thing. At the end of the day, the most important thing is that you're engaging the Bible. You're reading the Bible. Sometimes you're studying it. Sometimes you're just reading it. Sometimes you're just sitting and reflecting on it and meditating on it. Maybe it's one verse and you've got it open and you're just kind of asking God, what would you say to me or communicate to me through these words, right? And if you can engage the Bible in a deep and meaningful way while ignoring every single suggestion I've given you, that is totally fine, right? If you have a massive ESV study Bible with thumb tabs and gold lettering and notes and eight columns on a page and 18 ribbons hanging out, right? And you're engaging it deeply and meaningfully, well, go for it, right? I'm just giving you suggestions that have helped me. You do what works for you, the purpose is to engage and to enter the story and engage it meaningfully. So if you have any questions, um, you can always shoot me an email and I'll be happy to try to help you out. I hope all of this has been helpful. Thanks for taking the time to listen.